There we go. <laughs> Let me adjust the camera real quick. Good morning. We are in Acts chapter 25, as you've already realized, since Tom just read, it, read through it. Before we get started, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we're going to uh, see what God has for us in this text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we could come together again and sing, and be reminded that we need you, that we are desperate people, that we are people who uh, come to you with nothing uh, but our sin, and we come to you as beggars. And you, being a merciful God, give us your righteousness and forgive us our sins. And so we are here today to rejoice in the reality of what you've accomplished, what you've done, and what you continue to do in our lives for your glory. Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning as we look at this text that we'll be reminded again about how glorious you are and about how merciful you are, that you would reach out through time and space and and rescue sinners such as us. So glorify yourself in our study this morning. Help us to learn and help us to worship. In your name I pray. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 25, and if you remember, in our study uh, up to this point in time from a few chapters earlier, uh, you remember that this is, as we said the last couple of weeks, this is a continuing story. This is a moving, I mean, obviously from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28 is a continuing story. We get that. But there's Throughout Acts 1 through 28, you have all these isolated events that come sequentially as you study through the book. But now we've reached a point where it's all more of the same. This is ever since Paul has begun his journey to Jerusalem, which was ultimately going to conclude in Rome, arriving in Rome, uh, we are on that final journey that is described in Acts uh, the later chapters of Acts, which will conclude in Acts chapter 28. It is got these isolated little stories, but they're all tightly interconnected, whereas before we didn't necessarily see that they were all super connected, except for sequentially. Now we can see the, the process going by very much connected. First it was Felix, then it's Festus, then it's Agrippa, and it's all the same thing. Does that make sense? So now it's just like one big long story. And we're working our way through this story. Uh, the easy thing to do in going through this story is just to see it again, as we've seen before, and seeing it just as a historical record, as it were, and we want to try to avoid that. Just to give you an example, in today's text, most commentators look at the text that we have before us today as uh, being the singular important text where Paul says, declares he wants to have his case taken to Caesar. And that is oftentimes presented as this is the key text for that, and this is the, the, what is important in this text. Although certainly it is the key text for that point, for that event, as he declares, as we'll see in the text, and Tom just read it, that Paul wants to go to Caesar. It's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is something vastly different from that. And it takes a little bit of study in order to see that. And I think it's important that we see the real point of the story. So we're going to try to pull that out of the text this morning. As we've done the last few weeks, there's a lot of background material, or as we like to call it here at Redeeming Grace, a lot of color of the story that has value to the story, but it is the color. And so I want to go through it, as we've done the last few weeks, and show you uh, the color, but then we'll bring ourselves to the main point of the text. 
So work with me if you would. I know some of you have commented that, man, there's a lot of background stuff that you're covering, and I am, because it's important to see and understand the color and how it all interacts with each other to get a big flow of the text. So Felix is now off the scene, as we saw at the end of chapter 24. If you remember what we said about Felix, Felix is a bad guy. He's not a good guy. He's greedy, he is self-centered, he is self-exalting. He is replaced by a guy by the name of Festus. You see it in 25.1. Now, three days after Festus um, arrived in the province, you saw at the end of chapter 24 as well, it says that he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So within three days of him, and the idea is uh, in verse 1 of chapter 25, after three days of basically taking on his position officially, one of his first acts that he does is he travels to about about 40 miles down to, or so, down to uh, Jerusalem uh, to find out what's going on, get a feel for, for the land and what's going on in the, um, in, in, in the place where he has responsibilities and oversight. Festus, unlike Caesar, I'm sorry, unlike uh, Felix, Festus was a pretty good guy. Generally speaking, uh, historically he's recorded as being, for the most part, the exact opposite of Felix. He was genuinely concerned for the people he had authority over. And he was genuinely concerned for the Roman Empire. He was not after his own ends and trying to manipulate things for his own ends. So he, stand, he stood in, in dramatic contrast to Felix. So he arrives in Jerusalem, verse 2, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out a case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. We'll just stop there for just a second. So, it's about two years now. Paul's been, been under, for all intents and purposes, house arrest. He's been in the barracks. And he has visitors that come and go. And visit him, whoever would like to can visit him. Two years later... And the whole time, Felix and Paul have been conversing, as you know, and, and Paul has been presenting the gospel to him. And as the text described early on, Felix was alarmed by that, greatly alarmed, but then later on, he lost that alarm, didn't he? He just kept on hoping that he'd get some cash. So, it's interesting, two years later, Festus arrives in Jerusalem, and the text records that basically, as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem... He meets with the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. Whether they come to him or he comes to them, it says, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. So there's a group of Jews who are just as angry with Paul two years later as they were two years earlier. Do you get the sense of that? I mean, this is the passion of theirs. They knew they had no success with Felix. But Festus now is a different animal. And the reason why I say that is because he is a guy who genuinely cared about the people he had oversight of. Well, one of the primary people he had oversight, groups of people he had oversight of would have been the Jews. And so he wanted to find out what's going on and get a feel for it. And so he listens to them, the chief priests um, and the principal men of the Jews, they lay out the case against Paul. And they urged him, verse 3, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem and then you get the, almost the parentheses, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. 
Wow, things haven't changed, have they? It makes you wonder if the 40 people who were initially chosen or initially made the vow, <laughs> I doubt they're still hungry, but they're just as committed, aren't they? It doesn't say that it was those 40 people. You get the idea, though. It probably is. There are people who are just as passionate about seeing Paul dead now, and the chief priests and the elders, they're just as passionate as they ever were. They want Paul dead. And so they asked Festus to bring Paul down because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he's going to go up there again. He's going to return. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now, just a, a point of clarification, you hear uh, Festus say, come down to Caesarea, don't you? And the reason why he says that is because he's in Jerusalem. You'll always see the description that if anybody's leaving Jerusalem, they're always going down. And that's partially because Jerusalem's on a mountain, but it's more primarily because Jerusalem was the center focus of all of, Jerusalem, of, all of Israel. And so everything centered on the worship system in Israel, so if you, which was Jerusalem. So if you were leaving Jerusalem, you're always going down. It didn't matter if you're going up to the top of Mount Hermon, which is 6,000 feet higher, 7,000 feet higher than Jerusalem. You would be going down to Hermon. Does that make sense? It sounds weird in our, in our Western way of thinking, but that's how they would talk about it. So Festus basically says the same thing that Felix said before. No, you come to Caesarea. Now, at some level, that would make sense for, for Festus to say that. But what it, what's going on here is that the Jews want to kill him. We already know that. But they're not saying for, for uh, Festus to go up, get Paul, and him, Festus, bring Paul back. They're just saying, send Paul back. That's the idea. Festus is saying, no, I, I make judgments. So if I have to bring Paul, if, if Paul has to come back, I have to come back with him. He says, no, we're just going to do it there. I'm not going up and come right back again. So you guys can come on up, and then we'll try him up there. And that's what he's basically saying. So let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong with the man, let them bring charges against him. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So obviously, for, for Festus, this is an important thing. This is, this is a key issue. Most likely, the reason why it's key now, because he cares about his job, unlike Felix, he recognized when he was Jerusalem that this was a hot-button issue. That makes sense, right? He recognizes a hot-button issue, so he better deal with it quick. Verse 7, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Interesting shift that Luke makes in his storyline here. Up to this point in time, each, each time that, that uh, Paul is up for trial, there are specific charges that are listed, correct? And there are typically two or three specific charges. This time, Luke records, when he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood among him, 
bringing many and serious charges against him that, that they could not prove, which implies something, doesn't it? It implies that they're probably, they recognize that the previous times that their, their arguments, their prosecution of Paul didn't what? Didn't work. It was too weak, it didn't carry any weight, and so they started coming up with more and more and more charges. And they're really serious charges, Luke records. There's many, and they're serious. The problem with them, as Luke records it, is that on these many and serious charges, they could bring no what? Proof. There's no proof. So most likely what's happening here is he's, these people, the chief priests and the other leaders, are bringing a whole boatload of charges, and in amongst them are the original ones as well. I suspect that, that in fact, I know it's the case. We'll find out in just a few seconds. The original charges are there. It's not that they laid them aside because they didn't work the last times. They're still there, but what they did along with those, they probably said, and not only that, but he also did this, and not only that, he also did this, and that, and that, and that. And what they were probably trying to do is, if I may just say it this way, they were throwing whatever they could think of against the wall and hoping something will stick. You follow me so far? Kind of sounds like modern courtrooms, doesn't it? <laughs> Ask Nick, right? <laughs> you just keep throwing things against the wall and hope that something sticks. But they didn't have any proof for any of these things. Verse 8, Paul argued his, in his defense. And so now Paul steps up into his defense. Now let me just give you a little preview of where we're going. Verse 8, I would argue, is the key text in the entire verse, in the entire section. We're going to come back to it. I'm just reading through it right now. Paul argued in his defense, and he says this: Neither the law nor the Jews. Uh, I'm sorry. Neither the law of the Jews. Uh, I'm sorry. Neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now, could I just say I'm, I'm just going to get off of it, but I'm, just, I'm going to come back to it later. But I just want to put this out here right now. That's not the entirety of his defense. You do understand that's not a defense. That's not even an argument. That's a disagreement. All that is is I disagree. I didn't do those things. I'm innocent. That's all it is. I'm innocent. What Luke is doing here, and I know you see quotation marks. Quotation marks are not inspired, just so you're aware. They're not inspired. There were no quotation marks in the original Greek. In fact, there was basically no punctuation in the original Greek. The point is that Luke is summarizing, and we're going to show that in just a few minutes, okay? It's, it's clear in the context he's just summarizing. He's just giving the, a synopsis. So going back up there, verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do, do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Of course, he's playing off of the original request, the charges have come. Paul's denied the charges and put his case before, before Festus. Festus's response is, do you, wish to go, uh, do, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? I would submit to you the reason why Festus asked the question, and I think the context is going to show it really clearly. When it says he wished to do the Jews a favor, it isn't that Festus realizes they're going to kill him. 
it's for Festus, it's wish the Jew that do the Jews a favor by letting them try him, Paul. Because ultimately you're going to find out in the context, Festus is looking at it and saying, there's nothing here. So, yes, he's, he's, he's trying to do the Jews a favor, but he's doing himself a favor as well. Because if he, if he rules here, the Jews are not going to be happy. So do the Jews a favor and let them try him is the idea. You get that? Paul responds. Verse 10, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Paul's argument is, no. And it goes back to what he said before. I'm a, what? I'm a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, I deserve the right to be tried in a Roman tribunal. That's where I should be tried. That's where I belong. I, I should be, it should be declared guilt or innocence in a Roman tribunal. And the implication being, Paul saying, not in a kangaroo court. Because that's what it would have been if he had gotten there in the first place. So he goes on, he says, um, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. That part of verse 10 will fit very nicely into verse 8 that we'll see in a little bit. And notice he says to Festus, you know this is the case. And how does he know that this is the case? Two reasons. Number one is because they had no proof. We already saw that. And number two, what we're going to see in context with regard to verse 8, you know, just a little bit. He's saying to Festus, as a judge, as someone who judges, you know that this trial has no legitimate standing. You know that is the case. And it will become evident as we read through that that is the case, as, Paul, as Tom already read. So Paul goes on, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not to es- seek to escape death. It's simply say, he's saying, if I did something worthy of death, I, I, great, bring it. That's what he's saying. I get it. I deserve death if I did it. If I did what is charged and I deserve death, then okay, go ahead and kill me. I'm not looking to escape it. But if there's, any, if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. So now he's doing what? He's counseling. He's counseling Festus, isn't he? He's giving Festus legal counsel. He's giving the judge legal counsel. That's a pretty bold move. That's kind of confrontational, you think? And there's nothing to their charges, and there isn't. There's no proof, and even Paul says, you know it's true. If there's nothing to their charges against me, then no one can give me up, and the no one he's referring to is you, Festus. Then you can't do that. You would be out of line and out of, out of line of the law if you did that, is what Paul's saying. And so his final response is, I appeal to Caesar. Now, as a Ro- you should just be aware, as a Roman citizen, you had every right to appeal to Caesar, Caesar at any time. Any Roman citizen could do that. A non-Roman citizen could not. But a Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar at any time, and it would be required by law, to, with, with minor exceptions, there were some minor exceptions, but it would be required by law that 
he would go to Caesar. Now, just so you're aware, that'd be kind of like today saying, I appeal to the president. And Caesar, by the way, here is Nero. Caesar was a title. Nero was the guy. He was a pretty bad guy. And so when Paul... What's that? Sure. Sure, sure. Why do you do it? Well, even noble, first of all, Tom, we all know even noble individuals still have flaws, you know, and he's early in the job, and he doesn't want to create a massive ruckus right in the very beginning. He was only on the job for four years, by the way. But he, most likely, early on, three days into his job, probably more like 13 days into his job now, maybe 15 max, you don't want to create a, a massive ruckus with half of your people you have oversight to. And so you're trying to figure out, how do I get out of this? On the one hand, I can't rule on this because there's nothing for me to rule on. He didn't do anything wrong from, from legal Roman standpoint. So there's nothing that he can rule on. But at the same time, he knows if he makes a ruling that he's innocent, he's going to have an explosion. Right? And, he, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you suppress the explosion? What's that? But the only appeasement, there is no appeasement at this point. If, if you rule him innocent, there's no appeasement, right? So how do you suppress the, what's going to happen, most likely, as you look down forward into the future? Well, that's what he does, but, but at this point, if he, I'm saying if he rules him innocent, then what is his alternative when the uproar starts? Military. That's the only, that's the only alternative he'll have. If there's an uproar, military is his only option. And so in, in, in his way of thinking, the better thing is, first of all, to say, is it all right with you if we go? Which, if I were to say this, if I were to back up a little bit, that's a really bizarre thing for a judge to say. Isn't it? It's really a strange thing for a judge to say, hey, would you like to, <laughs> to, the, to the accused? Doesn't make any sense. But he does that because, again, he doesn't want to make a ruling. And he's trying to, to, to work with the Jews, but he doesn't want to make a ruling because if he does, it's just going to be an uproar. Because the only ruling he can make is innocent. There's no proof. So getting back into the text, um, let's see, where were we? Verse 11. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Just one piece you need to know. Just like today, if you appeal, I mean, we don't do this today, but if you were to have the privilege as a U.S. citizen to appeal to the president, that does not mean you'll actually physically be in the presence of the president. You do understand that, right? To appeal to Caesar is more I'm appealing to Rome and the governmental and, and the, the, uh, uh, the ruling authorities, judges and all the rest in Rome who report directly to Caesar. Kind of like the Supreme Court today. Yeah. And there were, in Rome, in Rome, there were multiples of those. There wasn't only one Supreme Court. There were several. And so when you appeal to Caesar, you're just appealing to that system. But it's only in Rome. Then Festus, verse 12, when he had conferred with his council, those who helped him, answered, came back and answered to Paul, to Caesar, you have appealed, to Caesar, you shall go. The reason why there was a discussion among the group is because there are some exceptions to the right to, um, uh, to appeal to Caesar. And they, 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 they decided whether it was legitimate or not, the best course of action is to send him to Caesar. Again, we're just working through the background. Verse 13, 
Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now we're introduced to another person, or two people. We, we know about Felix. He's gone from the scene. Festus has arrived. And now Agrippa and Bernice show up. Who is this Agrippa and Bernice? Well, first of all, Agrippa is called king. A king is not how you think a king is in this case. We think about a king as having his own kingdom. Agrippa did not have his own kingdom. But he did have a lot of authority over a large swath of Palestine and some other areas. He is also a descendant of a person you would probably recognize by the name of Herod. Being a descendant of Herod, he would know Jewish customs and laws really, really well. And he did. This other person that we're just introduced to is Bernice. Bernice is King Agrippa's sister. You may think it kind of odd that where Agrippa goes, Bernice goes. Where Agrippa's mentioned, Bernice is mentioned. You may find it really odd, and it is. And the reason why Bernice shows up on the scene wherever Agrippa is is because Agrippa and Bernice are in an incestuous relationship. They are very, very involved with each other, and we'll leave it at that. And being that they are very involved in that, Bernice has a lot of power over Agrippa because even in this day, in this place, incestuous relationships were not proper at all. So Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Verse 14, And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. The reason why Festus takes the case before the king is because, again, the king would understand things that Festus doesn't understand. He's only been on the scene for a few days. And Jewish customs are very different from Roman customs. Radically different in every way. And Agrippa knows Jewish customs. He was steeped in them all his life. And so he brings uh, Festus brings the case of Paul to the king and listen to what he says. There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence and condemnation against him. Verse 16, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge against him. So when they had come together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. So he's basically just filling um, Agrippa in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. So in other words, Festus said, after I heard all the things that were, that initially the, the priests and leaders said to me in Jerusalem, I thought, this is a really bad guy. And so they came up, I, I convened court right away, and I heard the actual charges. So he didn't hear the actual charges, he just heard all the, just unofficial junk. When he heard all the official charges, he discovered that they had no charge in his case of the evils that Festus thought they were, 
verse 19. Rather, and this verse is key, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 19 is an absolutely essential verse in light of verse 8. So hold that one. We're going to talk about that one as well. Verse 20. Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether we wanted to go to Jerusalem and be uh, tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. When Agrippa said, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So, interestingly enough, notice verse 20. Festus' declaration to, to Agrippa is what? Being at a loss how to investigate those, these questions. What questions? The questions about Jewish law and Jesus. He's at a loss. Why is he at a loss to investigate those things? He had no idea about them. This is not his bailiwick. He, this is not law stuff. This is not law stuff by any stretch of the imagination. So Festus is out of his league. Whether it's above his pay grade or below his pay grade, most likely below, this is nothing for him to be dealing with. Verse 23, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience. So you get the sense that we're kind of back to Felix type of person here? He, he enters with great pomp. That means he's got all his, all his regalia on. He's got the entourage, and you see a little bit of that here. They entered the audience hall with the military tri tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Now understand, there's five military tribunes in the city of Caesarea at this time. Okay? So five tribunes came in. Outside of the audience hall, that means that on his way up, he was, he was followed by the five tribunes and their 5,000 troops. You get the picture? And then all the prominent members of the city. This is quite a parade going on. This guy wants the attention, right? Then at the command of Festus, Paul... This, this is going to play next week more, too. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, uh, you see this man about whom the, the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So obviously, the passion is still there. The zeal to see Paul dead is still there. The rejection of not just Paul, but it's important we get it, and not even primarily Paul. But really, Paul is just the catalyst. The rejection is on what? Jesus. The rejection is about Jesus. Paul would be just fine if he wasn't preaching Jesus. The rejection is on Jesus. And if we only get rid of Paul, we'll get rid of the Jesus thing. Now you and I know that's not the case. But that's another story for another day. Verse 25. But I found that he had done, this is still Festus speaking, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. So now we have for the first time Festus publicly declaring something, don't we? He just declared his ruling. He didn't want to declare before, and the reason why probably he's not declaring it before, but he's declaring it now is because it's being shifted over to Agrippa. Absolutely. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I, I decided to go ahead and send him. Then things get interesting. 
But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about. The Lord he's referring to is Caesar. Therefore I have brought him to you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, that is, Agrippa and Festus and all the prominent men of the city, after we've examined him, I may have something to write. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a comedy show here. He's, he's having to send him off to, to, to Caesar, but he has no charges. He has nothing to send. He says, so I'm hoping, this is what Agrippa, what, uh, what Festus says, I'm hoping as a result of this event that we'll actually have something to write to send with him because it's kind of silly to send him there when he doesn't have any charges. And that's exactly what he says in verse 27. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine a court case? Uh, what's the charges? Yeah, we don't have any. What's he here for? The Jews don't like him. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So, Festus is hoping, because all through the end of the day, even though it's now kind of connecting with Felix, with, um, with Agrippa more, at the end of the day, when it goes to Caesar, it's going to have Festus's name on it. And Festus is desperately hoping to have something to send. Which takes us back to verse 8, because I think verse 8 is the key text in this storyline. Again, Paul argues his, his defense, in his defense, and he says, simply said, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And as I said, when we got to verse 8, that can't be all that he said. Luke is just writing a summation or a synopsis, high points as it were, the main emphases, the three points, as it were, of what Paul was arguing for. But what we find in verse 19, a little bit more understanding of what's going on, what Paul said. Notice again, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. Now, this is the key point of the text. Because what Paul does, I'm sorry, what Luke does here is he brings something to bear in this text that was kind of veiled in the whole Felix theme. It was there, but it was kind of veiled, and now it opens up a little bit more so we understand a little bit more of what Paul is actually saying. And this is why it's, this is important. Because you'll notice three points. He, he didn't do anything against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. I'm going to go backwards a little bit here. The, first, the last statement he makes, I didn't, do anything against, I didn't commit any offense against Caesar. What that means is I didn't break any of Caesar's laws. Which tells us in this many, um, many and serious charges, verse 7, that were brought against Paul, there were a number of them that were about... Roman law. But none of them can be proven. And so simply said, whatever those things were that they brought up about his violations of Roman law, that they weren't proven, and so therefore Paul can say, and he most likely went point by point through all of their assertions 
and he broke this law and this law and this law and this law and he said this is how I didn't do that and this is why I didn't do that and this is there's no way I could have done this and here's the evidence of that and he laid all those points out and it simply sums up in the third point I didn't violate Roman law so I'm going to leave that there because that's not what's really important although it had to be addressed because they were throwing these many and serious charges because they were hoping again that something would get him dead but the first two are what's very interesting because the, the accusation against Paul and it started with James and the elders, right? Remember? Remember James and the elders in chapter 21? Verse, um, verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands here among the Jews of those who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. And then the warning from there on out, the concern that when people find out you're here, they're going to believe all the things that they've been told about you, and they were all in error, but they're all things with regard to the violation of the law, right? And the attack on the temple. That's why we see those two statements here in verse 8. Neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple. The first two points. So what's really going on here? What was the charges against Paul, and what was Paul's defense? Well, the charges of the ignoring the Caesar thing are found in verse 19 again. They had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about Jesus. That's against the law in the temple. So what's going on? What are the Jews saying? Well, we find out in chapter 21 and chapter 22 and chapter 23 and chapter 24 that basically they're saying when it comes to these things, these two things, the, the arguing, you see it most clearly in chapter 21, if you remember shortly after what we just read, um, starting in verse 21 of, of chapter 21, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Okay? And that's an argument that's been flushed out ever since by the Jews. It's one of the arguments, one of the major arguments. And frankly, the Jews don't care about the violation of Caesar's law. They're just throwing things against the wall again. But they do care about the Jewish law. They are absolutely passionate about the Jewish law. At least they think they are. They're absolutely passionate about the Jewish law. And so this charge that we see clearly stated by Festus in verse 19, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. What is he talking about there? What is going on that Festus doesn't understand? Well, it's really kind of simple. The Jews are saying, this is the law. You need to what? Obey the law. Correct? You need to follow the law. Your hope is following the law. And then Paul comes along, and he says something radically different, does he not? Paul comes along and he says, you can't follow the law. That's what he says. He says everywhere. If you don't believe it, read Romans. <laughs> I mean, if you... You don't have to ring Romans to hear this come out. You just got to shake it a little bit. And it runs out. 
You can't follow the law. You have no hope to follow the law. Even in your best day of following the law, you will what? You will absolutely fail. And as Tom is, is wont to say many times, Tom, if you don't mind me quoting you, even in the best of our days, sin is, or best of activities, I'm sorry, sin is present. Right? That's Paul's declaration. You can't follow the law. Does the, the book of Deuteronomy tell you you're, you're, you, you need to follow the law? Absolutely it does. And it tells us you need to follow it how? Perfectly. And here comes Paul. And he says what? Does he tell them, ignore the law? No. Does he tell them, you don't have to do anything with regard to the law anymore? No. What he says to them is, you can't keep the law. I don't care how many times you sacrifice. I don't care how many times you follow as closely as you possibly can. You cannot keep the law. You are doomed to fail. And you cannot sacrifice enough to correct that. That's what Paul would say. That's what he did say. You cannot sacrifice enough to overcome it. And as a matter of fact, even by definition, the sacrifices were never intended and never could do what? Remove sin. Remove your violations and failures of the law. This is what Paul preached. This is what he proclaimed over and over and over again. He never said, don't follow the law. He never said, don't, or just go ahead and ignore it. Did he say that Jesus fulfilled the law? Yes. And that's the other issue. The other complicator was that what Paul was declaring was you could not, number one, don't care what law it is in the Old Testament, you cannot keep them at all. You are doomed to fail, and therefore you are condemned, which is what Romans is all about. And all that was to show you you needed someone else. And even all the lambs that you sacrificed and that your forefathers sacrificed, all they did was to look forward to the perfect Lamb of God who was prophesied. And so you know what Paul did? After saying those kind of things, he went through the Old Testament and he showed them Jesus. That's what he did. He walked through the Old Testament and showed them Jesus. He showed them Jesus in the prophecies over and over and over again. The prophecies pointed to Jesus and how that every prophecy that was made about the coming Messiah was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And then he showed them how the law also points them to Jesus. The law and the prophets all were talking about Jesus. Does that sound familiar to us here? It should. 
And you know why it should? Because that's what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus. Didn't he? Didn't he? That's exactly what he said on the road to Emmaus. He said it's all pointing to him. He was the fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. I can't tell you how many times I've had Christians tell me things like, you can't do that with the Old Testament. Unless it expressly is a prophecy about Jesus. For example, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 7. Unless it's an express prophecy clearly stating about Jesus, you can't do that. And I always look at these people and I say, well, Jesus did. Paul did. <laughs> and Jesus said, not only did he do it, but he said it all points to him. So what do we find? We find the accusation of false against Paul, but what is intriguing is that the issue, according to Festus, and he's right, there's dispute. It's not dispute over should the law be followed or shouldn't. The, the dispute is purpose for the law. Role of the law. What the law was referencing. What it was pointing toward. And how to interpret the law. And how to interpret the prophets and the prophecies. And what the prophets and prophecies were pointing towards. And even Festus said about this certain Jesus who is dead. And this guy Paul asserts to be alive. Verse 20. Verse 19. This front and center is what Paul gave as his defense. In other words, what Paul did for his defense is what? He gave him the gospel. Didn't he? He gave him the gospel. That's exactly what he did. He preached Christ and him crucified, resurrected, ascended, coming again. Fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. That's what he did. And that is the very issue, the rub against the Jews. Or on the Jews. Is this idea, firstly, that the Old Testament law had been misunderstood, misapplied, misinterpreted forever. And the prophecy had been missed and misinterpreted forever. And then, if it was true, see, they're fully vested here, aren't they? Because if what Paul's saying is true, what does that mean about all the Jews that are here? They're not just wrong. They're murderers. They're murderers of the Messiah who the Father sent to save them from their sins. Oh, have we heard that before? Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. That's exactly what Peter declared. Did he not? This same Jesus who you crucified? Exactly. Message hasn't changed, has it? These, probably more than a decade later now. In fact, definitely more than a decade later. Maybe even two decades later. Hasn't changed. 
Now, why do I center on this? Because I believe that this is the center part of the text. It is interesting that Paul's defense is not a defense of himself. Oh, yeah, with the Caesar thing, he points out the issues. Correct? Certainly, he says, well, they made these charges about Roman law, and I want to correct them because they're not right. I didn't do those things. But his central focus is what? Christ and him crucified, the fulfillment of the law, that all the law and prophets pointed to him. Now, why do I think that this is the key on the issue of this text? The key point on this whole storyline. Not just chapter 25, but chapter 24, chapter 23, chapter 22, and chapter 21. As well as, I would argue, the rest of Acts. Because I think it's really important that we recognize that Paul really isn't flippant about the truth, is he? Paul isn't really casual about the truth, is he? The truth really isn't just a part of his life, is it? Is it? It's not just a part of his life. For Paul, what's interesting is you, if I put it this way, because I've used the term before, if you go out and push Paul's button, you push Paul's hot button, what comes out? gospel does. Christ comes out. And you see that over and over again, don't you? What's important to Paul? I wonder what's important to Paul today. Christ. Next day, I wonder what's important to Paul. Push the button. Him crucified. Next day, push the button. What's important to Paul? Resurrected. Next day, I wonder what's important to Paul. Ascended. Next day, I wonder what's important to Paul today. Coming again. Next day, I wonder what's important to Paul. Fulfillment of the law. Push the button next day. Fulfillment of the prophets. What is important to Paul next day? He is my life. And push Paul's button the next day. I count all things done that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We can keep going with that one, can't we? Every one of those and more. It's like every time you're introduced to Paul, what's he talking about? Christ. And it's not just when life is good and people are receptive, is it? It's when they hate him, isn't it? It's when when they despise him, isn't it? When they want him killed, he's doing what? He's preaching Christ. There he is right before the barracks, and they want him dead. Chapter 21, and he says, can I talk to him real quick? They, yeah, sure, go ahead. The tribune says, sure, go ahead. He turns around, he does what? Come on, guys, can't we all just get along? Hey, everybody, can't we just let, give peace a chance? Can't we just agree to disagree? Is that what he says? Anyways? No. For Paul, his perspective is Christ didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And he said? And so Paul gets up and says, the only way that the sword ceases to be between people is if what? 
if people are grafted into the vine, that is the only hope for no sword between people. There is no other hope. Every other attempt is going to be what? A facade. Paper thin facade. And ultimately, if I bank on a different hope, my hope is no longer found in Christ and his righteousness. My hope is now found in the facades that I have created. For Paul, it begins, it remains forever. Christ. Now this is really important. And why is this so important? Because if we're not careful, we will weave into Paul's life our life. We will weave into Paul's thinking our thinking. We will weave into Paul's approach to life our approach to life. I've heard people say this, for example. Well, Steve, come on. Paul was also a tent maker. He also had a job. And he had to sell tents. And he had to advertise. And he had to show why his tents were better than everybody else's. I mean, you're making him sound like everything was Christ. I've had people tell me that many times. You know what I say every time? It was Christ. Every time. Do you realize that? It was. Did Paul sell tents? Yeah. But how did he sell tents? Why did he sell tents? How and why did he sell tents? Any, any answers? It's a, actually a really simple answer. Say it. Fund his ministry. Romans 11, 36. There it is. Why and how did he sell tents and advertise and everything else? All things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. Is that what he said? You think Paul believed that? Or do you think he just... Hey, these are neat words. I think I'll pen them and maybe somebody will write a song about it someday. You guess what Paul did? That would be a real popular song. I don't even know if there is a song on that, is there? No, there is. No, he penned them, obviously in the, the inspired words. He was born along by the Holy Spirit, Peter describes. But he believed them. And he informed him how to do tent work. I almost said ministry. Tent work. They informed him about why to do tent work. They informed him how to advertise. It all informed him. The making of tents has to be from him, through him, and to him. To be him be glory for every man. The advertising about my tenants has to be from him, through him, and to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. Because it's all things. That's what he said. 
And we go on down that path forever. So as a result of Paul's perspective, which is a right perspective, you know what we find about Paul? What we find out about Paul is that this guy Paul, who believed everything wrongly, correct? He believed everything wrongly. And we see this more clearly in chapter 26. And he lived according to the wrong thinking, did he not? Ultimately, on the road to Damascus was met by Jesus, right? As he was living life the way he thought was right. And he ran smack dab into Jesus. And he was gloriously saved. And when he was saved, he became, whereas once he was a hater of Jesus, he became a lover of Jesus. Whereas once he despised Jesus, he became someone who couldn't know enough about Jesus. He became someone who hated the idea that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And he became someone who just wanted to see more about Jesus being the fulfillment of the law. And he wanted to understand and comprehend at a greater level, at a deeper level, how Christ fulfilled the law. And whereas at one point in time, he misunderstood all of the prophecies, Afterward, he just wanted to understand more and more how the prophets all pointed to Jesus. And you know what that desire, by the Holy Spirit in his life, caused him to do? Study to show himself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what happened. As a result, Paul became someone who was consumed and in his case, he already knew the Old Testament, right? Now, the New Testament didn't exist yet. He was going to end up writing most of it. In his case, he already had his doctorate, so to speak. And when he did, he went back to kindergarten. <laughs> or maybe even earlier. What do you call your age group? You call, you, preschool. Went back to preschool. That's what he did. Had to work his way back up. And you know what he did? That's exactly what he did. He studied. And he discovered. And he learned. And as he told Timothy, he continued to cling to what he's become convinced of and what is true. And the more he he clung to it, the more he grew by the Spirit at work in his life, and the more, as a result, he wanted to learn more. And the more he learned, the more he wanted to learn. Because he couldn't be satiated with what he knew. He wanted to know more about his Redeemer. Because he was a recipient of Christ's love. And so we find him here later in his life. Not just in good times, not when it's easy. 
When everybody wants him dead, he's doing what? He's talking about the one he knows. You almost get the sense when you listen to Paul that he knows more about Jesus than he knows about himself, don't you? Don't you get that sense? He knows more about Jesus than he knows about himself. And by the way, that's not just an idea. That's real. He does know more about Jesus than he knows about himself. Because they're harsh, deceitfully wicked, right? I fear, though, because I think most of us as Christians know a whole lot more about ourselves than we do about Jesus. I fear because most of us as believers could probably spend a whole lot more time talking about what we do for a job than what we know about Jesus. I fear that most of us as believers could talk more about our recreational activities that we enjoy than we could talk about Jesus. I fear for most of us as Christians that, that if, if some unbeliever, or let me change that, if a Jewish person who's a practicing Jewish person came up to you and I, I'm not talking about an agnostic or an atheist Jew, I'm talking about a practicing Jewish person, came up to you and I and said, I can't believe you believe in Jesus. Why would you ever believe in Jesus? I think the average Christian would have a lot of difficulty talking to a Jewish person who only clings to the Old Testament. And be able to point them to Jesus. I think, I think we would struggle. Why? Why is that? Why is that? This is a really important question. Why is that? I would submit to you that, except for some exceptions of some, some people who are newly saved, right? I submit to you that we would struggle. And the answer is not because we didn't go to seminary. It's because we don't taste and see if the Lord is good as much as we think we do. Because we're not drinking at the fountain of living water like we think we are. We've dumbed it all down now to think that it's just about, you know, I had my devotions, if we did. I listened to some Christian songs, if we did. And it's the evidence that we're not really caught up in Jesus. Paul is facing death here. Isn't he? He's facing death. And what does he do? Let me tell you about Jesus. You know that's the case. I mean, he rattled Felix's cage, didn't he? Last chapter? My goodness, he rattled Felix's cage. He's going to rattle Agrippa's cage too. He's clearly rattled Festus's cage. He's like, I don't know what to do with this. He's saying things I don't know what to do with. This Jesus fellow he talks about that he claims is risen from the dead. Clearly Festus is rattled as well. Why? Because, well, that's just because Paul's an apostle, right? That's just because Paul's an apostle. Come on, Steve, you don't expect me to be like that. Huh? Really? I don't expect to be an apostle. If you are, we need to talk. 
But this is what should be happening in believers' lives, shouldn't it? That we are people who are saying, look at what my Redeemer has done. Look at who my Redeemer is to myself. I want to know more about my Redeemer. Which, to make sure I'm being Trinitarian, Tom, is going to lead me to know more about the entire triune God. I want to know more. I want to be immersed in Jesus, the one who loved me and stood in my place, who has prophesied and perfectly fulfilled the prophecies. I want to know him. And I want everything in my life to be about him. That should be a an absolute drive of the Spirit is who the Bible says the Spirit is that ought to be a drive in our lives. And it ought to be grieving continuously that that's not who Jesus is in our lives. Shouldn't it? That should, be, that should grieve us continually that that's not me. And can I give you a hint? That grieving should go on until we are glorified. Because it will never be you or me. Because we need him but then we will see him face to face. But oh, I suspect, I suspect if, if we were people that by the Spirit were, was being drawn to seek Jesus, to know Jesus, intimately know Jesus, and then as a result, intimately know the Father and the Holy Spirit, you know what? I suspect we would be like Paul saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I suspect you and I, like Paul, would be saying, oh wow, they want to kill me. Opportunity to proclaim Christ. Oh look, my boss wants to fire me. Opportunity to proclaim Christ. Oh, my boss wants me to do something unethical. Opportunity to preach Christ. Oh, my neighbor is, is, that I'm hanging out with right now is saying some things that are really, really inappropriate or wrong opportunity to proclaim Christ. Should that not be the mind of those who are after Christ? Shouldn't it be? Look when we hear the text here. We have to recognize. And I'm challenged by this. I just want to say I'm challenged by this. I wonder if there's been anybody in my life who's walked away from me saying, whoa. What's up with that dude? He talks about some guy that rose from the dead. What a nut job. I wonder if there's been many people in my life who have, who have come away saying to themselves, after talking to Steve, I am really greatly alarmed. I wonder if there's anybody who's ever said, Steve, so quickly you try to persuade even me to become a Christian? These are statements about Paul. I'm afraid that too often, there's been too many times 
when people come away and say, oh, Steve's just trying to convince me of his political leanings, to be like him politically, to like his football team, to like his sports, his recreation, his fill-in-the-blank. I'm afraid too often that's probably the case. And that should be troubling to us all and bring us to a point of calling out for repentance. In repentance, I'm sorry. That the Spirit will forgive, that God will forgive us and the Spirit will be at work in our lives in that very transforming process that Paul is experiencing and talking about, for example, in Philippians, as well as many other places. I mean, how many of us, if I may just say this, I'm going to close on this, but how many of us actually can even see it from where we are, the statement, I consider all these things done. Can we even see it in our eyesight, spiritually speaking? Let's stretch it from our eyesight. Can you see it on your radar screen? That pushes out 200 plus miles. Is it incomprehensible? It shows where we are spiritually when we consider these examples. Oh, that I would know Jesus. Oh, that in my knowing of Jesus would be so great that as I talk to somebody, the thoughts that come to my mind is Jesus. That the thoughts that pop into my mind is glorifying him in this event, this circumstance that God has ordained for his glory. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. We should probably be praying that way a little bit more often. What do you think? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are people who struggle with these things. They're uncomfortable. They don't wear well on us. They're tight. They're uncomfortable. And the reason why is for us to wear these things means we must die and we don't want to. Or as John the Baptist says, we must decrease and he must increase. We don't want to. So these are very uncomfortable things. They're very tight things. But you have said you've come to set us free and to give us life abundantly. And so Lord, I pray you will help us to see as you see. And help us repentantly to turn to you and discover freedom and to discover joy and peace like we never have known. Glorify yourself in our lives. In your name I pray. Amen. As we approach the communion table, I know the ending of our message this morning is is a, a painful message. Um,
It's uncomfortable. I get that. I think communion messages should be uncomfortable because we are talking about the Holy One. We are talking about our Redeemer. We are talking about our absolute inability and his absolute ability at great cost to redeem people who could not redeem themselves. That, by definition, must be uncomfortable. Even on the other side of the cross, we having been saved people, it is still an uncomfortable message. Because I don't know about you, but the idea of dying to self and decreasing is very uncomfortable. The idea of counting my life as done and the things of my life as done that I may gain Christ is very uncomfortable. I want to not count my things as done and yet still gain Christ. I've got a better plan. I want to cling to what I am and what I have and yet gain Christ. But that's not the biblical paradigm, is it? It just isn't at all. What the Spirit does in people is he takes them from self-worship, which is ultimately what all of it is, self-worship, self-glorification, to being introduced to one so much greater than me and so worthy of worship and glory and praise and honor that it would be incoherent for us to do that for ourselves. Because I have nothing, and I am nothing, and he is everything. So when we come to the table today, we are reminded of that, right? We are reminded of all of our time before we were saved. We are reminded of all of that flailing that we did. That's all it was. It was just all flailing to self-save. And it amounted to nothing but more condemnation because the law pointed to something else, someone else. And we have the cup and the bread before us this morning screaming out to someone else. And we are reminded again that we who flailed for, in many cases, for a long time, some cases for a short time, accomplished nothing except for more condemnation, and in one fell swoop, in his weakest point, he accomplished salvation. It is a stunning vista. So as we come to the table, it's appropriate for us to repent. Is it appropriate for us to remember our flailings before we were saved, but the grotesque, the absolutely grotesque flailings that have taken place for, since that point in time when we were justified? where we have continued to flail and to repent and to cry out for God's forgiveness. And the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amazing once again, isn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that, that sanctifies a wretch like me too, isn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that ultimately will glorify a wretch like me. So let us come to the table. Repent, grieve, yes, and repent.
but also let us come to the table and rejoice that he who began the good work in you will continue to perfect you to the day of Jesus Christ. Come to the table and be reminded again that his grace is sufficient. Come to the table and be reminded again that when he said it is finished, it really is finished. And there is no more flailing needed. None. Because flailing amounts to nothing but loss. And so let us pray and repent. At the same time, let us remember and rejoice. Shall we? I'm going to pass out the elements. And um, as always, we will take the elements together. Uh, the inner ring is the wine, and the outer rings are the, are the grape juice. So you take whichever one you would like.